The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Okay, let's take our Bibles, if you will, and open them to Exodus chapter 30. I was sitting here just a moment ago looking over my notes for the sermon tonight, and usually I give an introduction before we ever get to the reading of the text, and I discovered as I was looking through the introduction tonight that I never left a place for reading of the text. So we need to do that. So we're going to read first, Exodus 30, and we'll start here at verse number 17, Exodus 30, verse 17. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not, or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So shall they wash their hands and their feet, that they die not, and it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. Our study of the tabernacle this afternoon resumes with the courtyard tour. We're in the space that is inside the linen fence that surrounded the the uh, entire tabernacle, and this was an area that was 150 feet by 75 feet do the math on that, and you come out with a little bit over 11,000 square feet. And in this area, there stood the tabernacle structure, which itself is about the size of a studio apartment, if you wanted to compare it to that. But you had the tabernacle structure, and then in that area, you also have the brazen altar, uh, the brazen labor that we'll talk about tonight, and then also enough room there that... Uh, the sacrificial animals could be brought there and wait to be uh, killed on the altar. And so in our, in our overview of the, uh, of the tabernacle, you can, you can see uh, this, what I'm talking about there. We have, not, yeah, we have a picture there. And, and uh, after passing through the multicolored gate that's there at the opening, uh, going into that area, there's the brazen altar, and then between it and the tabernacle is the laver, and the labor, the brazen labor, is the subject of our of our uh, message tonight. This labor, of course, was used for water in the middle of a hot, arid, desert climate. Water was valuable. Water was sought for. In fact, when Israel came out of Egypt, Moses brought them across the Red Sea, and the first discontent of the people was lack of water. And so they asked Moses, did you bring us out here into the wilderness to let us die of thirst? And of course, without water, the body lasts for only a few days. We can do without food longer than we can with water. And so water is something that we need for physical life. And in the word of God, water is often used metaphorically for our dependence upon the grace of God. Uh, David wrote in the Psalms, uh, Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee, my soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. 
In the New Testament, Jesus used water as a comparison to righteousness. He said, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then again, David talked about the body's need for water when he described how he felt that he would die if he didn't have the hand of God to support him. So in Psalm 143, he said, I stretch forth my hands unto thee, my soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land selah. So water then is used in a, in a general sense throughout the scriptures for our relationship with God, but water also has a more specific metaphorical meaning having to do with the need to be cleansed from our sins. Sin is defilement. Sin on the soul is like dirt. It is foul. It pollutes. And so the soul must be cleansed. And water, as water washes away dirt that's on the body, so then it's used in a spiritual sense to uh, be emblematic of the washing of sin from the soul. Now, I hope you understand, I'm sure that you do, that there is a great danger in that, uh, in, in symbols and figures, types and so forth, because sometimes what people want to do is to make the thing signified to be the reality. Uh, since water is emblematic of washing, and it references washing from sin, some have taken baptism, which is a, a symbol of regeneration, and they have made that into the, into the means by which we are regenerated. But our baptism can no more wash away our sins. The water in a baptistry can't wash away our sins any more than the water in the labor could wash away the sins of the priest. So we have to watch out for that, that um, we, we look at the symbols to point us to the reality, to, to the very thing that accomplishes these things for us. And the thing that has, or the person who has the power to cleanse us from our sins is not water, uh, it's not in the emblem, it's in the person that is in Jesus Christ who is our Lord and Savior. Now once again then, the tabernacle is the home of symbols, of types and figures, of the true worship of Jehovah God, and, and we would say most importantly about his son, Jesus Christ, because that's what all of this is set up to show to us. So the brazen laver in the courtyard tells us a story in symbolism, and it's symbolism, and it reveals another aspect of God's work of redemption, and God never did give it to save anyone. We're saved by the object of the symbol, that is Jesus Christ. Well, in our last lesson, we described how the laver was filled with clean water. And after the priest made the sacrifice, and before he could go into the tabernacle, he first had to go to the laver to wash his hands and his feet. Now, the next picture that we have for you shows this laver. And the labor is rich in its symbolisms, and one of these is the method by which God cleanses the soul. David said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. And so when we look at that, we don't actually have to see water in that passage, but we see the word cleanse, and automatically we think of, of water. Water is the way that we are cleansed, and that in turn uh, gives us a symbol for the Word of God. So the Word of God is the way that we are spiritually cleansed. It's the water that washes our soul. And that was the first point of the outline last week, that is cleansing proceeds from the Word of God. And we needn't really look very far to find type cities metaphors. We've just read it from David in the Psalms. And God uses His Word to purify, to sanctify believers on Sunday mornings, we read from the Word, and then immediately afterwards, we 
proceed to a time of confessional prayer. And it comes right after the word because the word is convicting. As we read the word of God, it, it stimulates us to cleanse our ways, as David wrote. Then last time we looked at two aspects of the word. We said that the word reveals God's will and the word reflects our sin. So what God has given us with the Bible is a is objective truth in Scripture. We have the Bible, the inspired Word of God, that tells us all that we need to know about righteousness, about doctrines of the faith, and so it instructs, it convicts, and it brings about conviction of our sin. So the Word tells us about sin. It's the mirror that we gaze into. It shows us whether our paths, the ways that we walk, are they clean and are they just? Uh, you can imagine the priest looking into his reflection in the water of the laver. And there he could see the blood splatters that were on his clothing. He could see the dirt trails that run down his face from the sweat in that, in that uh, arid climate. He knew he had to wash all of that away before he could go into the tabernacle. And that's what the Word of God does for us. Tried to show that to you last week. How we look into the Word of God and it is the mirror. It's the mirror where we see the dirt of sin. And there's not much of another way to say this, but if you are a Christian who doesn't spend very much time in the Word of God, if you're not a regular student of God's Word, then it is most likely that you are a dirty Christian. And I mean that your heart is not going to be right. Your fellowship with the Lord won't be what it's supposed to be. So every day what we must do, we've got to go to the mirror of God's word and we need to see what kind of people we are and then to correct those ways that are not God's ways. So that's the first lesson about the labor. It represents the word of God, the only way that we can be cleansed. And that way is to use God's cleansing agent. It's the holy word and the labor represents the need for us to be cleansed by the word. Now, secondly, we have this uh, cleansing proceeds from the word of God. Then secondly, cleansing prepares us for the work of God. After a person is saved, he must be separated from the world to be used in the Lord's service. He must be prepared for the work of God. In our last message, we, we learned that the laver is just beyond the brazen altar. And the priest was not to stop there at the altar and then go no further. Neither do we stop at the cross and go no further. And it's interesting that in Hebrews, the, the one book of the New Testament that has so much to say about tabernacle worship and explaining things that are done, one thing that Hebrews says about the Word of God about, and about our Christian lives is that we're not to stop, but it makes this statement, let us go on to perfection. It means let us go on to be sanctified. And so as the priest wouldn't stop at the brazen altar and stay there, nor does he go to the brazen laver, stop there and stay at the brazen laver. Because the very next step for him is service. And God's not pleased with him until he enters the service. And so in our justification, we don't stop and find contentment simply in our forgiveness. But we must go on and serve Christ, the one who gave his life to forgive us. So the priest has duties. God's not satisfied with him until he goes on to those duties that are required for the people. Well, we look at this and we say, why do we need to be washed? Why can't we? Why can't the priest in this case, why can't he just bypass that labor? Why can't he just take the blood and go into the tabernacle to do his business there? Well, 
it teaches us, the Word of God teaches that it's not just the sacrifice that's needed. You can't go straight into the tabernacle, so to speak. Before you can get into your, your Christian life and, and do what God wants you to do, the very first thing that you must realize is that you are polluted. All of us are polluted. And there's nothing that enters God's presence that is not holy and clean. Revelation speaks of the ultimate sense of this when it uh, talks about the new Jerusalem. It says in Revelation 21, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the only way that we can meet God and have fellowship with Him is that first... We must be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Again, Revelation says in Revelation 1, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now the labor stands for two types of washing. First would be the washing of regeneration. This is what we read in Titus 3 verse 5. Of this washing, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So no one is going to reach God. No one will go into his presence without the washing of Christ's blood. The path to God passes through, or you might say right under the blood of Christ. And without that, no one will ever be saved. It's blasphemous. It is ludicrous for a preacher or anyone else to say that you can be saved without Christ's blood. Now, I can stand here and say that to you. And you, I'm sure all of you are in agreement with me. And you would think, what Christian would ever think that a person could be saved without Christ's blood? Well, it's become popular to preach different theories of salvation. One theory is called the wider mercy view. Uh, Robert Schuller and uh, the late, late Robert Schuller and late Billy Graham discussed this doctrine in uh, one of uh, Robert Schuller's shows, and both of them concluded that it's possible to be saved without hearing of or believing in Jesus Christ. That in some way, a person could be cleansed by Jesus without hearing him or believing in him. Now, that means then that a person could be saved by not being cleansed by faith in Jesus or cleansing or receiving the cleansing blood through uh, uh, an appropriation of faith. It would mean that the word of God is not necessary. You don't need to hear that. And so, in effect, it says that it's the sincerity or the goodness of a person to to be true to whatever religion that he is in. If he believes that that will save him and he's sincere about that, then he can be saved, which, in fact, excludes the blood of Jesus Christ. So you have to ask, where is the Holy Spirit in that? Where is the washing of regeneration? The Word of God is very clear that we can't be saved by works of righteousness that we do. We can't be made righteous by any man-made system of religion so it doesn't matter how sincere we are about what we believe, we are sincerely on our way to hell if we do not believe in Jesus Christ and are covered under his blood. So the tabernacle, all of this is picture proof of the need that we have for the shedding of blood. 
It's in the examples. It's in the symbolism of what Christ did for us. And so there was no Israelite who would, who would suppose that he could be saved by substituting his opinions by anything that he thought that he would be accepted by God. It must be done God's way. Now you see the pillar of cloud in the day, the uh, fire at night, the presence of God in the Shekinah. All of this was predicated upon Israel's strict obedience to all the rituals, the types, and the figures of these things that were true. So everything else that, that they would do would be untrue. And the history of Israel proves this, that every time that Israel departed from those ways, every time they profaned the tabernacle or the temple worship, the Bible says the glory of the Lord departed from them. And there you find Israel in captivity. There you find them conquered by their enemies. They have to go exactly by what's written in the word or these instructions that God gave. So we are polluted if we're not washed from our sins. We have no part with God. And there's only one cleansing. That is the blood of Christ appropriated on behalf of the believer for our justification through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So that is one picture that we would see in this. We would, we would see that we are polluted from original sin and thus we have the need of regeneration. We have the need of justification. But the labor also has another meaning to it. It also stands for the daily washing that a Christian needs. Now when we receive Christ by faith, we're saved. We have no, no doubt of that. We're saved by our faith in Him. We're changed from the dominion of sin. We are delivered from the power of sin. And yet the Bible teaches that we are not yet delivered from the presence of sin. We live in this world every day. The sin is here. We're in the presence of sin. So we simply say we are saved sinners. As I said this morning, we're not yet glorified. We're still in this body. And while we're in this body, there is still sin. The sinful nature is not eradicated. And so daily we have to deal with this sin nature that always plagues us, that's always after us. So we find ourselves at war with our thoughts. We are always trying to clean up our thoughts. I don't want to think this thing. I don't want, or the thing, our actions. I don't want to do this thing. We're at war with that physically. Our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears are drawn away by temptation so that we find the word of God is absolutely true. That out there is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And all of those things are trying to draw us back in and ruin our faithfulness to God, our holiness to God. It's always working on us. All of us experience this to the point that the Apostle John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And you do well to read that chapter to see who's John writing to, who's he talking about. He's not talking about lost people, he's talking about saved people. If you say you have no sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. So you need to go to God with confession of sin. So the priests then were to come here to continually wash in the laver because they were dirty. They were dirty from their activities. Now in a symbolic way this is true. They're dirty from their activities and that pictures the Christian life that we live in a world where we can't escape the dust and the dirt of the world. We can't do it. When you were born, when you came into this world, how did you come? You were covered with gunk. All kinds of nasty stuff all over you. So the nurse cleaned you all up, wiped all of that off, handed you to your mother, and she said, there you go, that baby's clean, you'll never have to touch him again. Wait 15 minutes, 
and find out if you have to touch that baby again. Well, the same thing is true in our salvation. We are regenerated. We're washed clean. We're always going to be the child of God. But as long as we live, we won't stay clean. The sin in the world uh, will get on us. The filth of the world gets on us. And so we have to be washed from that. Now, another interesting aspect of the tabernacle is the instructions that are given that we have all these instructions for walls. We have instructions for ceilings uh, and ceiling of the tabernacle. There are the doors. We've discussed those, uh, the gate entrance, and then later we'll come to the actual door of the tabernacle. But there isn't anything said, and all the instructions are, that are given about the floor. Nothing is said about, did they put something down on the floor? Did they walk on rugs? And the answer to that is no. The floor is the dirt. The floor is the sand of the desert. And all that courtyard that you just saw in the picture there, all of that is just dirt and sand. All that set up over the dirt and sand of the desert. And so as the priest would go about his daily duties, he would have to walk through all that, walk around the dust and the dirt, and, and that would get on him. And so it is in the Christian life as we go about the Lord's business. Uh, our feet are constantly walking over the dirt, over the, uh, as he walked over the dirt of the desert. So we walk in the dirt of this world. And so often the priest had to go to the labor to wash his feet. His hands were bloody from all the sacrifices that he made. And so he must continually stop there to wash his hands and his feet. Now, the application of it is obvious. We are justified, we are in Christ, but nevertheless we're in a world of defilement. And so in our business, in our social life, uh, in our religion even, we're exposed to the defilements of the world and of our flesh. And God knows that. So God made provision for daily cleansing. Listen to what Paul wrote. Speaking of the Lord's church, he says in Ephesians 5, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, through the word, then, there is this continual cleansing because we constantly need it. Christ is always working on us. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us so that one day we will be, as that scripture describes, the church that is unstained, the church that is unspotted, the church that is blameless with its feet above the dirty ground in heavenly places. So we are polluted. We need daily washing. Well, then what happens to us in this daily washing? Well, in it, we are purified. We are purified. Now, I want to remind you that God doesn't use dirty vessels. Uh, it may be that you're saved, and I hope all of you in here, you are saved. But it might be that you're not prepared to be used in the Lord's service. We used to sing a chorus long ago that was, uh, the title of, was, of it was A Vessel of Honor for God. And the chorus went, A vessel of honor for God, a vessel of honor for God, sanctified, holy, that I might be a vessel of honor for God. And that's the only way that God will use you. You must be sanctified, you must be holy, to be used in God's service. But did you know that in, in this world today of shallow, superficial gospel preaching, this is a truth that is ignored. There are people that are invited, come to the altar, come to the altar. They encourage them to come forward, to sign the card, be saved. And nothing is ever said about giving evidence 
of a changed life and separation from the world. Now, you've been around me long enough to know that that's one of my pet peeves. High pressure, soul winning techniques where they say repentance is not necessary. Repentance from all your sins is not necessary. You only need to repent from unbelief. And so thousands of people are told this. They can be saved simply by changing from unbelief to belief. And so repentance to them is not turning away from your sins, but simply another way of saying you've got to have faith. So they never really talk about giving up the past sins, the things that you're in or the way that you live now. So that's not the whole story of what salvation is. True saving faith includes repentance from all sin and the understanding that Christ rules the life. And the Lord that we serve never permits us to hold on to our sins. And those that are genuinely, truly saved by the blood of Christ don't desire to stay in sin. So they're not going to make excuses about it. They will change from sin and then give evidence of that change. I'd call us back to the tabernacle and and ask if you think God would allow the priest to miss spots that are on his robes. Can he miss those? Does he not need to be cleansed? Can the priest go into the tabernacle dirty? Can he say, well, I've been to the altar. That's good enough. Now I'm ready to go to the laver. No. Washing in the laver, or he's ready to go to the tabernacle, I should say. Washing in the laver is... is To show that we need to be cleansed and purified from the daily defilement of our sins. So we must be regenerated and we are justified. But we must also be sanctified. No one is fit for the Lord's service until he submits to the Lordship of Christ. Now there's a very convicting lesson here I believe. God demands his people to separate from the world's defilement. So we as the people of God need to continually go back to the labor. We've always got to be there washing away the dirt of sin on us and uh, all these defilements, all the sins that get on us in the, in the walk through this, through this life that we're living. And before we were through with this study, we'll see how God calls the people back countless times. God expected every detail of his plan to be followed. You know that. You've seen it in sacrifice that we study. You've seen that in, in the priest garments, how precise that God was in all the things that he commanded Israel to do. And, and so we would look at that, and it's in the Old Testament. We do know that. Uh, is the Old Testament something that we need to pay any attention to today? Is this actually, is it a current event lesson that, that we need to learn, that we see here in the Old Testament, or is it just, just for those people of ancient times? Well, no, this is for people today. And and to show you that it is, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, Ye are a chosen generation. Ye are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. That ye should show forth the praises of him that have called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. There is as much a demand for holiness in the New Testament, for the New Testament Christian, as there was for any Old Testament Israelite. In fact, there is more of a demand for holiness because we know more. We have so much more information than what the Israelites understood. We know more about God. We know more about Jesus Christ, obviously. We know more about the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if you see holiness and requirements in the Old Testament where God says, I'm going to strike you dead if you don't do this or you don't do that, and the priest is supposed to wear a a plate on his head that says holiness to the Lord, you can be sure of this. That's only a smidgen of how much we are to be holy in our lives as Christian people today. 
God demands it. God says, you need to be holy. Well, are we ready to work for the Lord? Now, why is it when the Bible says that we are to be holy people, why don't we look like it? Why don't we act like it? Church today doesn't look much like a modern priesthood. Preachers don't preach about holiness to the people. Church should look like a church. It ought not to look like a sports bar. Church ought not to look like a tavern. We ought to look like God's people. But I don't actually think that's the biggest problem that we, that we face. I think the biggest problem is really a heart issue. I think that our churches don't have a sanctified heart for God. We're not really thinking about the holiness that we need to live in. So the question is again, are we ready to work for the Lord? Are, will we be used by him? And according to God's word, the answer is no, at least not until we are cleansed. Now, you know that we're not required to wash our hands and feet in a labor that's outside in the parking lot. Those things are emblematic of the true, of the true cleansing. So we don't do that. We must have our hearts clean. We must have our hands and our feet cleaned in a symbolic way. Jesus said, the blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, thirdly, I find this also to be an interesting part of the brazen labor symbolism. The labor also showed that cleansing protects from the wrath of God. Serving in the tabernacle was very serious business. And we see that in verse 21 of our text. So they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. So if the priest went into the tabernacle and failed to stop and wash his hands and feet, he would be struck dead. Now, we, we, I think we all need to be thankful that God doesn't operate in the letter of the law today. If he did, I would invest in a funeral business. Because every time the doors open out there, we'd be carrying somebody out and I'd go, ka-ching, there goes another one. And uh, that's, what, that's what I would do at least. People would die in the vestibule. But God does demand holiness. And I want to show you something about our, our merciful God. Uh, God provides cleansing. And because he does, we are protected from his wrath. Without cleansing by the blood. If we didn't have that, we would be no different than the, than the worst heathen who walks on this earth. We'd be struck down. We'd be cast into the pit of hell for our sins. But the cleansing of God delivers us from the wrath of God. Let me just show you a couple of interesting pieces of this labor picture. The first is, as we examine what it has to say about the labor here in Exodus 30, that no dimensions are given. There's nothing here about the dimensions of this. Now, every part of the tabernacle, the building, the furniture, the, the coverings, every part of that is described with minute details, including dimensions. The Bible will say four cubits here, five cubits there, ten cubits for this, a hand breadth and a span, all of those are units of measurement. The fence, the door, the altar, the buildings, the holy place, the holy of holies, the ark of the covenant, the altar of incense, everything that God said to make had dimensions. But you notice here there are no dimensions that are given for the labor. In fact, this is the only furnishing the tabernacle. We don't know how big it was. All we know is big enough. It was big enough to do what God wanted it to do, but there are no dimensions given. Now, Solomon, later, Solomon, uh, when he built the temple, he made 
a golden laver, a brazen laver rather, that was 15 feet in diameter and seven and a half feet deep. He made it big enough so a priest could climb into it and just submerge himself in it, even though that wasn't a requirement. In fact, God didn't want them to do that. And well, I'll show you that in just a few minutes. But uh, Solomon's, Solomon's labor had dimensions to it. But here the original one that goes in the tabernacle didn't. There are no specific dimensions. So why didn't God give dimensions? Is there significance in this? Well, I think we have to be careful about trying to assign something, uh, some meaning, some symbolic meaning to every detail that we would read. And uh, maybe we would go, go beyond what we are supposed to do. But if God has given dimensions for everything else that goes in the tabernacle, is there some specific reason that he would leave it out concerning the, the, the brazen labor? And in fact, I think, I think there is some symbolism here. I think it tells us that the forgiveness of God is unlimited. As the, as the priest went about his daily duties, he came to this labor perhaps dozens of times to wash. He was constantly getting dirty. And as often as he was dirty, he could come back to the labor to wash. And I think it teaches that God has a limitless supply of forgiveness. And, and this aspect of righteousness in God is illustrated by Jesus beautifully when he was speaking to Peter. You remember this in Matthew 18? Peter asked a question, Lord... How oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. I know you've heard this preached on many times. This Jesus saying, all right, well, the limit of forgiveness is 490 times. Seven times seventy. No, Jesus was simply illustrating that as many times as forgiveness is asked, as many times as forgiveness is needed, forgiveness should be given. And what's that based on? Well, it's based on nothing else but the Lord himself. In, in Ephesians 4, 32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, tell me something. Do you, does understanding the circumference of the labor, a circle that has no beginning or ending, a circle that has no dimensions, doesn't that open up another dimension of understanding of Christ's command to Peter? And the picture is, I can go to God at any time. I can go to God and ask him to forgive my sins as many times as I sin against him, there is an offering of forgiveness for it. That God is never short of forgiveness and cleansing. And so John wrote, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John includes nothing in that verse that says, but you can only come this many times. He only says, if you confess your sins, then God is going to forgive you of your sins. So there aren't, there's, there's no limitation on this, how many times God is faithful to forgive us. Now, the spiritual labor then, this is the place where sinful Christians can go countless times to find the mercies of God. There is no limitation on his promises. And then based on this, the word of God teaches that I should forgive others that trans, uh, transgress against me. I've been saved from the wrath of God because he forgave all of my sins. And the sins that I committed against God were far greater than those that people commit against me. When I sin against God, I sin against the infinite, righteous, holy God. 
But when people sin against me, all they do is sin against another sinner. And so God's forgiveness of me is far greater than any forgiveness that I could give of another person. And the lesson in that, in that is, if God can forgive the greater, why can't I forgive the lesser? If I'm going to be like him, I've got to be ready to forgive my brother who transgresses me. Now, let me show you one more piece of this, uh, of this puzzle. There are no dimensions given and no death is necessary. There is no death necessary. So the priest comes back to the labor numerous times for cleansing, but it wasn't necessary every time that he came back to make a new sacrifice. Now, this is intended to show that the sacrifice that is made is a complete sacrifice. There's no need for another. And for example, on the Day of Atonement, there was more than one sacrifice, but there was only one sacrifice, uh, one party that needs to be cleansed. And after that's done, another sacrifice doesn't need to be made. They go another year until the Day of Atonement for another sacrifice is made. So here, sacrifices made continuously year by year, but that goes away when Christ came. When he came to be that, uh, that one-time sacrifice by his death on the cross, then there is no need for any more sacrifices. We don't come back to God because we have sinned and say, well, we do need another sacrifice for this. No, when, when you're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, you are fit for heaven, you are washed from all sins, you're immediately ready to go at that very moment. Well, if it was possible for you to lose your salvation, if that could happen, then it can only be because Christ needs to be sacrificed again. If you could lose it, Christ would need to be sacrificed again. That one sacrifice wouldn't be enough. Cleansing wouldn't be enough. Hebrews 6 says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And that is what would happen. If, if you could be lost, Christ would need to be crucified again. Now those scriptures tell us, they're pointing out the logic to us, that we can't lose our salvation. So if we commit sins after we're saved, those are all covered under the blood of this one sacrifice. So the, the, the labor pictures washing of regeneration, yes, but it also pictures this washing of daily defilement. In order for us to have, a, have constant communion with God, in order to have fellowship, we have to be continually washed. And that aspect is another one that is illustrated by Jesus. Now, if you'll turn to John chapter 13, we're going to finish here. As Jesus taught his disciples about daily defilement and the sufficiency of that once for all sacrifice. So we have two things going on here. We have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that washes us for all time. And then we have a picture of the daily washing that's necessary in John chapter 13. In verse number one, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father... Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, 
and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. Now there are many sermons that are available from this text. But let's just focus on this one aspect. That Jesus washed Peter's feet. And Peter thought it was too far beneath the Lord for him to do it. So he said to Jesus, I'll not permit you to wash my feet. And then Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you can't have fellowship with me. Well, Peter says, well, that was a dumb thing to say then. So I'll say something even dumber. If that's the case, then wash my hands and my head. Or in effect, wash all of me. Give me a bath. And now Jesus says that's not necessary. He brings them right back to the tabernacle, to tabernacle worship. The brazen labor is not for taking a bath. It's for washing the hands and the feet. So Jesus told Peter, you have been washed from your sins. And what he meant was, you have been justified, Peter. You are justified in my blood. And now all you need is to be cleansed from daily defilement of walking in this world. In other words, now he's talking about his sanctification. That's why I said just a moment ago, even though Solomon made that laver in the temple seven and a half feet deep, big enough to get in and almost swim around in, the priest would not be allowed to do it because it would ruin the very type. It would ruin the fact that you don't need to be cleansed all over. You just need to be cleansed from your defilement of daily sins. That is your sanctification. So we find here a beautiful picture. And I think that we couldn't understand it completely as the Word of God intends to teach if we don't have knowledge of the priest in the courtyard washing his hands and his feet before he went into the tabernacle. Now here is just another tremendous example of how Jesus took the scriptures, pieced all these things together, and here is God thousands of years before this incident with Peter occurred, and he's got a tabernacle example to show the people what to do. Nobody thinks of these things but God. Nobody puts those together. Well, let me give you a last thought. Uh, I have tried to make some applications in the sermon, and, and surely these things don't do us any good unless we get personal with them. So here's the last thought for you today. What, ask yourself the question, what is in my life that robs me of service to God? The picture of the labor is that we're never going to be fit to be used in God's kingdom until we have been washed from all of our defiling sins. Sin is what keeps us out of God's service. Now, thank God that he doesn't strike us dead for coming into these services without confession from sin. As I said a moment ago, there's no labor out there for you to wash in the parking lot. We don't have that. But you do need to consider, what are those things in your life that you need to get rid of so that you can effectively serve God? What's going on in your life that you know as you sit right there in that seat that God is not pleased with it? What is that thing that you think or that thing that you do that you wouldn't dare want me to make public from this pulpit. 
Now, we all suffer from that, don't we? We're all in danger of that. Uh, most of us would be ashamed to have every thought expressed, everything exposed for others' inspection. I, I won't do that. In fact, I can't do that. But when you stand before God, he knows it all. God can expose all. Nothing escapes, escapes him. So you might as well confess your sin because he's holding you accountable anyway, whether you do or you don't. So here in Proverbs 28 verse 13, it tells us, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Well, the Christian who doesn't walk according to the word of God, the one who's not fulfilling the word, applying the word to his daily life, Sooner or later, I'll tell you what will happen to him. He'll begin to lose consciousness of the Holy Spirit's power in him. He'll even lose consciousness that the Holy Spirit works in him at all. This is what happens when we ignore the word of God. It's what happens when we ignore what we do in our daily lives that hinder our service to God. Because this is what we are designed to do. We're designed to come here and work in this church, to have a part in it. And in our daily lives, to continue to... Do those things that God would have his people to do. And when we neglect those and we don't look at our lives to make sure that it's what it's supposed to be, that's when we begin to lose that consciousness of the Holy Spirit with us. And if you think it's not serious, you're wrong. And not only is it serious, but it's totally unnecessary for this to happen to you. And the reason that it is, is because this labor of God's word, where we find out these defiling sins, is readily available to us. Every one of you has a copy of it. I have multiple copies. You probably do too. It's, it's accessible to us. All the good things that God would have us to do that thoroughly furnishes us to every good work is found right here. And we all have a copy of it. But sadly, here's what, what happens is that people pass by this labor every day. They pass it, leave it on a shelf, never stop to look at it, never stop to wash in it. And thus they can't be effective in the Lord's service. I'd ask you, are you guilty of that? Thank the Lord that he's merciful, he's patient, and he's kind. But that doesn't mean that God is always pleased. God gave the tabernacle for types and pictures and real lessons for us to learn and to obey. So obedience of the people, that's what granted success to Israel. We know that Israel wasn't always obedient. And so in this story of the tabernacle in the wilderness, we find the people of God take a three-week journey and turn it into 40 years. All because of their disobedience to God. But even at that, is God merciful? Oh, certainly is. Because all of those years, for 40 years, they had the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, that symbol, showed them that God never left them. Though they would stray away from God, though they would be unfaithful so many times, God never left them. Not in this sense. The tabernacle is always there for them to go to at any time they can come and ask God for forgiveness. And so the word of God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You can't be lost again, but you must be washed daily to be close to Jesus Christ. So I would say to you, heed the message of the labor, heed the message of the labor, confess your sins, and be used in God's service. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for another wonderful lesson that we see in the tabernacle 
Always, always, we're looking at pictures of Jesus Christ. We see the examples as they work out in the New Testament, how Jesus taught from uh, the tabernacle on many different occasions. And, and the symbolisms, the types and the figures come through in New Testament teachings. Or that shows that we need to go back to the Word of God. We need to go back to the Old Testament. We need to learn what Israel learned. We need to be holy as they were holy because the same consequences of holiness are ours as it was for them. So when they were unfaithful, then Lord, you couldn't bless them. And when we're unfaithful, the same is true of us. But when they would come back and when they would confess their sins, then you were always there ready to forgive, always ready to start all over again and give them the success that they needed. And so they passed over the Jordan, went into the promised land, and you gave them that land. Lord, we pray that you'd help us as your people uh, to give up the daily defilements of this world, to wash in the labor of your word, and then go and possess all those things that you promised for us. And we give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.